0: Whether you're at a point of having to make a career choice, or you simply like to hear what others are passionate about, this podcast is about the workers who make up our nation's economy. I'm your host, Allie Nielsen, and this is Employed.
1: I have to remember and keep the mentality that the mortality rate for these kids without me is 100%. None of them have a chance if we don't give them that chance.
0: Thank you so much, Josh, for coming on tonight. Can you introduce yourself and tell everyone what you do?
1: Absolutely. My name is Josh Crowley. I am a pediatric cardiovascular perfusionist. It's a little bit of a mouthful, but my job um, is best explained. So, most people may not think about this, but in heart surgery, um, it's very difficult for a surgeon to fix anything on a beating heart. So, when he's making cuts or sewing something that's broken, whatever it is, that heart actually needs to be stopped, which you can imagine, is a big problem, right? Like a a stopped heart is typically called a dead patient. So I run the machine that allows us to continue circulating the blood through the body and oxygenating that blood um, temporarily. So taking over the job for the heart and the lungs during that surgery so that we can stop the heart. It can be fixed. It's also very important that the heart be empty. So we drain the blood out of it in addition to stopping it. So I administer the solution that allows us to stop the heart, drain the heart. Then the surgeon does his job up at the table. And then, um, at the end of the case, we kind of pass the job of beating back over to the heart. And, uh, yeah, so my job is to just kind of run the bypass machine, run the heart lung machine. So that's, that's kind of my job in a nutshell. I'm sure we'll get into a little bit more detail as we go along, but yeah, that's, that's what I do. And then uh, like I mentioned at the beginning, I'm I'm a pediatric perfusionist, so I I had a choice coming out of school whether I wanted to do that on adults or kids. I felt like kids was a great fit. So,
0: you know, as I mentioned before, I had never heard of this profession before, and it is vital. How did you hear about it? What you, What got you interested?
1: Yeah. So the story I kind of tell I during my undergrad, I knew I wanted to go into healthcare. And for a while, I thought I wanted to be a PA for a while. I thought I might want to be a dentist. And every time I kind of like thought this might be my path, I would kind of take some classes, shadow, shadow some people. And then I felt like I'd hit a roadblock, like, ah, it seems like a great fit except for this or whatever. Hmm. And so, and I think a lot of people in healthcare can relate. Healthcare has such a wide variety, like jobs vary so widely in your schedule and in what you're doing. And people don't realize how many different jobs there are in healthcare. Yeah. And so, so my story goes that I was about a semester away from graduation. I had finally decided for sure I don't want to be a dentist, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I have an uncle who's been a great mentor to me. He's an ear, nose, throat surgeon. And we were actually at his house. It's crazy to think three years ago at Thanksgiving. And I just started talking to him and kind of explaining what I was looking for, but didn't feel like this fit for that reason or didn't feel like dentistry fit. And he was like, well, I have a friend that's a perfusionist. You know, have you ever heard of that? And the rest is kind of history. I looked it up on our drive home from Thanksgiving and applied a month later and ended up in school about eight months after that. And so things, things moved really quick. I, I was able to shadow a couple of cases before I interviewed for school. And that kind of helps solidify like, okay, this is what I want to do for sure.
0: Can you provide information on what education and experience is required?
1: Perfusion in its earliest days, heart surgery has only been around for like 70 years or so, like true heart surgery. In the earliest days of perfusion, it was actually an on-the-job training, um, believe it or not. So you didn't need a degree at all. It was just somebody teaching you how to run this machine. Over time education and understanding the body and stuff is you know there's a premium put on that and so kind of the education requirements have gone up and up right now I just counted the other day for you in preparation for this I think there are 18 perfusion programs in the country right now they range from being certificate programs so it's it's literally just like training you get a certificate and you're good to go Um, there's a couple of bachelor's degrees and then a lot of master's degrees. So I, I chose to go the master's degree route. That's just what fit best for me. But I have the, you know, I work with people that have certificates. I work with people that have master's. So right now, either one of those would be bachelor's degree. Doesn't make a lot of sense just because you would have to know starting your undergrad that you wanted to do that. You know what I mean? And so it's like, most people don't find out about it until later going to get a second bachelor's in, in perfusion doesn't make a lot of sense. So yeah, so my program was 21 months long. It was nine months in the classroom and then a year out on rotations. And that's okay. pretty typical across perfusion programs, though they do vary in terms of what kind of uh, emphasis they put on the clinical education, like how much time you actually spend in the OR doing the job versus, you know, the, the book knowledge side of things. So depending on what program you choose, it it could vary a little bit, but lengthwise, you're looking at about 18 months to two years and then either graduating with a certificate or with a master's degree. So my master's degree is in cardiovascular science. So, yeah, that's that's kind of the and then as far as like licenses and stuff. So there are two board exams that I had to pass. Perfusion is lucky in that it's a small profession. So you actually can practice without having passed the board exams, which is kind of crazy and kind of scary. You can have like a provisional license until you pass. Depending state to state, that provisional license can be really loosey-goosey and sometimes a little bit more strict. So those two board board exams, one of them is book knowledge, very science-based. The other one is more kind of clinical application-based. They go hand in hand. They're very similar, both about a four-hour test. I, w- I was very prepared by my program for that. So.
0: And with you saying there are 18 programs in the U.S., that kind of caught me off guard. Does that mean mm-hmm. the programs are really big? Is it really hard to get into a program?
1: Yeah, so going back to kind of like what drew me into perfusion. So it is competitive. I don't want to mislead people into thinking that it's not. However, I would say it is far less competitive than say like medical school or dental school in terms of your GPA coming out of your undergrad or, you know, that, that was one of the things I was really looking to avoid. I had gotten really fed up with kind of the competitive nature of college. I was just like, mm-hmm. I want to go somewhere that I feel like I can excel. And that it's not just like this cutthroat, you know, anything for an A kind of a, a mentality. And that was just a product of years and years of undergraduate, you know what I mean? You know, I, I did not come out of school with a 4.0 or like, you know, perfect scores on anything. So competitive in terms of limited number of seats. Yeah, it is. I mean, most programs right now are probably accepting like anywhere from about 10 to 20 students a year. So it's really not that big. My program is th- that I graduated from was the largest in the country and um, I believe this last year they took 38, I want to say. So almost twice as many as any other program. But yeah, so there's not a lot of seats, but mm-hmm. the opportunities are out there for sure for those that are interested. You know, if if you can get in to see a case, you know, for those that are interested in perfusion, that helps you out a lot. If If they feel like you really know what perfusion is, that's one of the big fears of perfusion schools is taking somebody who's like, oh, like, This sounds interesting and it's not what I was most interested in. Mm -hmm. So this is my backup plan. You know, Perfusion schools are always going to be wary of people that you can tell that you're a backup plan and you don't really know what you're getting yourself into. So anyway, so if you've seen a case and you can really show that you're serious about this, that helps out a lot.
0: What are the demographics of your field, specifically gender and age? What do you see around?
1: There's actually a list of every certified perfusionist in the country that you can access online and it's like 140 pages 32 names per page so I was like okay I'm not going to count all of these but I picked five at random and and took stats for you so that I could like I mean I'm a science brain right so here's your (laughs) here's your random sample so of those names that I surveyed 39 percent were female so so still slightly male-dominated I think very similar to a lot of fields it is becoming more even Mm -hmm. Um, I would say of older perfusionists that I've worked with a lot more were male of younger perfusionists I've worked with a lot more female but I'm generalizing but but I would say that that's kind of what I've seen so so it's pretty pretty even as far as age ah, It's so tough to say I think that I've heard people say a lot that it's an aging profession meaning that A lot of the perfusionists that were sort of that first generation are nearing retirement or have recently retired. So there is a huge shortage of perfusionists in the field right now. Jobs are very plentiful. Like I could go anywhere right now, you know, and just for, just for an idea, like out of school, I think I interviewed at six or seven, I want to say places. And I had an offer at every place that I interviewed Um, and, and (laughs) sad that doesn't speak to me. I, I know it sounds braggy. <laughs> that really doesn't speak to, to me at all. That was like, you're somebody with the education that's necessary. Please come here because right. we, we need perfusionists. And so there is a need there. And so I would say it is maybe kind of an older profession with a new wave coming in behind, is maybe how I would define it. I don't have like a, the, the online list doesn't include age.
0: What range of salary can someone typically expect to make in this field?
1: Yeah, so the vast majority of perfusionists right now are making between one and two hundred thousand dollars a year. There's not a lot of movement upward once you get in. I would say, you know, you you kind of cap out pretty quickly. I think by five years, most people are making, you know, close to as much as they're going to make. Uh, I guess the caveat to that would be if you move up, you know, if you become involved in leadership or if you start your own perfusion company, you know, there's opportunities to make more. That way, um, but yeah, between one and two hundred thousand.
0: And with it being that big of a range, would you say that getting a master's degree would kind of increase your salary a little bit, or does it depend on other things?
1: So I do remember people talking about that before I got into perfusion school. That master's degrees have more opportunity to to make more. I would say my experience thus far has been that that's not true. That. Mm-hmm. I'm doing the same job as the guy next to me that doesn't have a master's degree and he's not going to do the job if he's not getting the paid as much as I am. And so as far as it being a large range, so pediatric perfusionists do make a little bit more because uh, there are reasons for that. I mean, generally, unfortunately, you lose more patients as a pediatric perfusionist. There's uh, less margin for error in our job. And so there's a little bit more pressure. Um, And so they are paid a little bit more. There's a few different ways that perfusionists are employed right now. So you would think I'd just be a a hospital employee. And that is the case for some perfusion groups that you're just, you know, just like the nurses next to you, you're Uh employed by the hospital and um, that's that's who signs your paycheck. But there's also a lot of us, myself included, that work for basically a contract perfusion group. So the hospital pays the perfusion, the, the contract group to provide a certain number of perfusionists and then that's actually who signs my paycheck and so right now it's probably about half and half so probably around 50 percent of perfusionists are hospital employees a half of us are are employed by a contract group generally speaking i think people would say hospital employees get paid a little bit more especially probably benefits wise they they have a little bit better benefits Again, these are all like wide generalizations. There's probably yeah. going to be a perfusionist that hears this and it's like that's not true for my group. <laughs> but but generally, I think um, they make a little bit more and their benefits are a little bit better. But that's kind of out of our control, right? I mean, I can go out and seek out a job that's you know a private uh, hospital employed position. But other than that, like you know, if I want to if I want to go to a hospital, I'm just subject to whatever their their contract is. Um, I guess the other thing I should say. About my position specifically. So, there's something called ECMO, E C M O. It stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. Lots of big words that say long term bypass. Okay. So, sometimes you have a patient like right now in the COVID um, situation. So, we know that that attacks the lungs mainly, right? So, if your lungs get to the point that they cannot oxygenate your blood, one strategy that can be used is to actually pull blood off of your body, oxygenate it for you, and then return it. And that's called ECMO. And obviously when you're doing something like that, that's very invasive Mm -hmm. and could go badly very quickly. And so there has to be someone who's trained to sit with that machine to troubleshoot if something were to happen. Sometimes that's nurses, sometimes that's respiratory therapists. In my case, it's a perfusionist. I don't pump a lot of cases um, comparatively to some of my colleagues, but I sit ECMO. And so when we have an ECMO baby that's on, it's 24-7 coverage, right? So between me and my two co-workers, we have to make sure that one of us is there at all hours of day and night. I'm lucky because I actually get paid hourly on top of my salary for that. And so that is a way that, you know, I have my base salary and then I may make, depending on how bad a year is, I could make a lot more money from ECMO, just depending. But that's not necessarily the standard. Uh, it just kind of depends. Some, some jobs will say, this is a part of your job, deal with it. We feel like we compensate you adequately, that you should plan to do this.
0: I think that's a perfect segue into hours. What are typical sure. hours? And I'm sure it varies, but like, what are your hours generally?
1: Yeah. So it does vary a ton. So you can imagine in a week where we have say three cases and an ECMO baby on, uh, that means that, you know, I could easily be at the hospital for 60, 70 hours a week without any questions asked. I've only been here since June. And I'll tell you that there's been three, maybe four weeks that I didn't take any PTO and I didn't set foot in the hospital because we had no cases scheduled and we didn't have anyone on ECMO. So I spent time with my family and, you know, made money. And it was, so it really does vary a lot. I will say I picked this job for that schedule. I wanted a job where it was a little bit feast or famine that I knew I would have stretches where I got to be with my family. And the way that I paid for that was during the busy times. I have lots of classmates that pick jobs that are, you know, pretty standard. You know, we're so busy that we have to schedule it out. And so you can just count on 50 hours a week or 60 hours a week or whatever it is. On an average, I probably would say two cases a week. Um, and a case, we'll go through a typical day in a minute here, I'm sure. But I'm usually home by about three. And so as long as we don't have anyone on ECMO, I would do that two times in a week. And that would be my, my week. Um, and then, you know, like right now I'm on call, I might have to hang up with you and someone might have to go on ECMO and I'm going to be there all night. It's such a good time to get into perfusion right now because I had that ability to look at those six or seven positions that I interviewed for and say, okay, like I could go here and it'll be crazy and I'll work, you know, a ton of hours and I'll get tons of experience, but I'll never see my family. And then maybe after three or four years, I'll get out and find a more chill job. And then I saw this job that was like, hey, we'll take you right out of school and it'll be a lot more relaxed, but you got to be ready to be ready to work hard. And for me and my personality, that just fit me best.
0: Well, yeah, let's let's talk about an average day. Can you walk us through from the time you arrive to the time you leave? Yeah,
1: absolutely. So I typically arrive for a, so our cases start at 7.30. That's the time that the patient rolls into the room. So I usually get to the hospital at about 6.30 to set up my whole disposable circuit um, before the case. I prime it, meaning that I fill it with clear fluid and I make sure there's no bubbles, one of the biggest concerns we have when we're returning blood to the body is if we were to ever introduce air, that air could induce a stroke very quickly. And so have to make sure that it's totally de-aired. You know, there's drugs that we put into our prime to help mitigate the inflammatory response to bypass. That's very common. The patient will come in the room, anesthesia will kind of do their part to get the patient asleep and comfortable. Then eventually I'm skipping a few steps here, but the surgeon will come in um, once we're all ready for him, make incision, and then work his way down to the heart. Usually sometime between 9 and 10 a.m., he'll be ready to initiate bypass. So he'll place the, we call them cannulas, it's basically a a tube that goes into the right vessels, and he'll say, go on bypass. This is when I, you know, lose years off my life from stress, and you know, (laughs) things go crazy, and then we go on bypass. A typical bypass run, I'll. You What's know, very busy, you know. I'm monitoring the patient's status, making sure that the patient's pressure looks good, making sure you know we have the ability to cool or warm the patient depending on what we're doing. Um, we may want to cool them down really, really cold, and so I'm monitoring the patient's temperature. I'm running blood gases, so we're managing like the pH or the CO2 levels, all those types of things in the patient's blood. So I'm doing that. Anticoagulation, making sure that the patient doesn't clot, um, so that my my machine doesn't clot off, because that you know our our blood naturally wants to clot when it's not in our body. So we have to make sure that doesn't happen. So I'm measuring that. That's kind of everything that's happening during a case. Eventually, once the surgeon has done whatever he needs to do to fix the heart, hopefully, we'll get ready to come off. So we'll rewarm the patient we'll get them stable, make sure that, you know, all their blood gases look good and electrolytes and everything. Um, I also skipped a pretty big part where we stopped the heart, but we'll, we'll make sure that the heart is ready to start back up and get that all ready. We'll come off bypass and those first few minutes when you're off bypass are a little bit crazy because sometimes the heart doesn't respond right away. And so you got to go back on and things like that. So as long as things look good, then, the, the weights off my shoulders a little bit. A typical pump run, again, can vary so much depending on what you're doing. But here at my job, I would say it's anywhere from about 30 minutes to like two hours. And so it's really not that long, but I tell my wife, like, I lose years off my life it during those two like hours, <laughs> you know, feels like an eight hour day packed into two hours, but come off bypass, it's a little bit less stressful from there, I'm just kind of helping out in the room being ready if anything goes bad eventually once the surgeon's satisfied he'll close the chest close the skin i'll tear down that disposable part of my machine throw it away set up for the next day once the patient gets to the room i you know i'm typically good to go and so i'm usually home like i said by two or three o'clock is like pretty pretty typical day for me so it's really not too bad in terms of the the time that i'm away from home now those hours are crazy and intense and, and stressful, but I also love that.
0: Do you ever interact with the patients or their parents? Do you ever have to go in beforehand and explain what you're doing or?
1: No. So that's, that's all on the surgeon. Surgeon and anesthesiologists are the ones that are going to be interacting with patients and patients' families. Now with ECMO, that, that changes a little bit because it's, you know, parents might be in the room with me while I'm sitting next to their their child. And so that gets a lot more emotional for sure. And a little bit more difficult. Typically we still try to allow doctors to be the ones that are communicating big details just because if you have information coming from multiple different people, especially when a patient's not doing well, that can get a little bit sketchy. We do our job when the patient is nice and comfortable.
0: I guess shifting gears just a little bit, you work in pediatrics. What are some other specialties that that someone
1: could have in this field? Yeah, so one thing about perfusion that people should know before looking into it is you are pretty locked in. I mean, there's not a lot that I can do with my knowledge other than be a perfusionist, mm-hmm. right? And so some healthcare professions, whether it be nursing or PA or, or even going to medical school, leaves you a very wide range of things that you can do. Perfusion is not one of those careers. This is, this is my specialty, so pumping for kids is one specialty. Pumping for adults, I would say there's some perfusionists out there that are really into research that might okay. kind of try to make that their niche that they want to they want to research more. There are some perfusionists out there that have made a career out of only sitting with ECMO patients, so they don't they don't pump bypass cases, they only monitor ECMO. So that's kind of a specialty in and of itself, you know, teaching, I mean, kind of a specialty in a sense. I mean, that's that's really kind of the extent. Uh, all perfusionists are kind of going to be doing the same thing more or less as every other perfusionist.
0: Okay, that's good to know. What is maybe the best day you've had or what's a memory that sticks out to you that confirmed that you were in the right field?
1: So one that came to mind, this was actually not too long ago, a little girl came in. Well, I shouldn't say a little girl, a nine-year-old girl came in from a third world country, and she had a congenital heart defect that we see fairly frequently that we typically correct within two to three months of birth. And she had lived with this defect for nine years, and it had obviously affected her in, in various ways, but she had managed and survived and, you know, been good. And then she got a sponsor that brought her to Orlando, and, and we performed the, the surgery, and she went home. You know, with a normal functioning heart and that, I mean, the job satisfaction for something like that is just amazing, you know, through the roof that like you get to do that. ECMO, as I mentioned, can become more emotional and it goes both ways, right? We'll talk in a second, maybe about bad days, but a really good day is, you know, a mom that, you know, hasn't gotten to hold her baby yet because they came out so sick And, you know, I was a part of the team that, that gave that treatment that got her to the point where she gets to hold her baby and eventually is going to get to take her baby home. I mean, that's, that's a pretty good payday.
0: Can you share with us just maybe what's a bad day or what's a challenge that you frequently face?
1: You know, stating the obvious, sometimes despite our best efforts, we can't save everybody. And that can be really hard when you've put your heart and soul into, you know, and, and worked really long hours. And then it comes to a sad end. I try to find purpose and meaning in still giving that mom an opportunity to hold her baby just, you know, towards the end. We always try to make that happen. And so as sad as it is and as hard as it is, and I'm, I'm still getting used to that part of the job for sure. I'm, I'm fairly new still. So that's really tough. I would actually say, though, that we compartmentalize that as best we can. I have to remember and keep the mentality that the mortality rate for these kids without me is a hundred percent. So, you know, they, none of them have a chance if we don't give them that chance. And so even when we do lose them, I have to remember, like, we gave them the best chance possible and, you know, that can help. I mean, it doesn't make it easy, but, but that can help to kind of realize like I'm filling a role that if we have any that make it, you know, that's a, that's a success at the end of the day. Another part of my job specifically that makes it maybe a little bit tougher than some other healthcare professions is just that the environment in the OR is one that's obviously there's a lot of pressure on everybody in the room from the surgeon down to, uh, you know, everyone, everyone that's contributing to this team atmosphere. And as in any profession, I think where you're working in a team, different personalities, can sometimes really bring the best out of you or bring the worst out of you. It just kind of, you know what I mean? And, and stress has an interesting way of sometimes bringing the best out of us or sometimes not, you know, you, you work with a lot of people and the surgeon is obviously the captain of the ship and um, his demeanor is understandably going to be affected by what's going on in the surgery. And there's a lot of pressure on him. There's a lot of pressure on everybody. And in that kind of an environment, sometimes you end up in the line of fire from somebody that is dealing with a lot of pressure and stress of their own. And so that can make for a tough day. You know, it's again, it's a part of the job. And really, the longer that you work with the people on your team, the better you can kind of predict, you know, what he's going to do when this happens. And what am I going to do in that situation, you start to read each other better, you interact better, you build more trust. And just like with any team in any profession, the longer you've worked together, I think the easier it is to deal with that stress. So it's not an unmanageable part of the job, but it is definitely something, especially as a newbie that I'm still learning to navigate, you know, personalities in the room compounded with stress. So that when you ask what makes for a bad day, that that's, that's part of it for sure.
0: Do you have maybe, uh, unexpected experience that's happened at work something that's just a fun story to share
1: in school we learned some of the training that i received was for crisis like when things go as badly as they possibly can how do you try to pull yourself out so like if the power goes out you know what do you do things like that so one of the ones that we as perfusionists fear the very most is oxygenator failure so one of the main components of my circuit is an oxygenator which obviously, as the name um, suggests, is doing the work of the lungs. So what do you do if, for un- some unexplained reason, or explained, doesn't matter, that oxygenator isn't doing its job? And they said, if I remember right, of the 35 of two of you will probably face this in your career, just based on like statistics. So that makes you feel a little bit more comfortable. Like, on just my second rotation, we were on a crazy case, and... It took the surgeon seven hours to be ready to even go on bypass. So I'm sitting there like at any moment he could need me, but it takes seven hours. We finally get on bypass and within minutes it becomes very clear that something's wrong and the oxygenators were not working. And of course I was with my youngest preceptor at the time. And so it was like deer in the headlights for both of us for sure. But he's an incredible perfusionist, super capable. I was lucky enough that I had just practiced this like three months earlier, you know? And so it was like, okay, this is our moment, you know, like we have to change this thing out. So even though the heart's not pumping and we're doing the job of the heart, we have to temporarily stop, cut this out of our circuit and replace it with a new one and do it as quickly as we can without introducing any air. And, uh, We did it and the patient was great and everything turned out okay. And that was, when you asked about the best day, I mean, in a way that was the worst day and in a way that was the best day because it was like, you wouldn't wish that on your worst enemy it was like so scary but it was also so gratifying to know like wow my training worked i knew what to do and you know we saved that patient's life and the surgeon actually he's an amazing surgeon too and he he texted us that night it was like nice work team like we saved that guy's life and that was that was a really gratifying moment but very unexpected two out of 35 of you in your entire career will ever have to do this and i here i am like 3 months out having having to figure out how to do it
0: do you have any advice for anyone who might be interested in in this job after hearing this?
1: Yeah, I mean I have lots. Uh, you know, feel free to to reach out to Ali who will forward you on to me. I'm I'm an open book, so I'm more than happy to talk to anybody that's that's interested. Um, you know, it has very typical prerequisite uh, course requirements to most, you know, graduate science degrees. So if, if you if you match up well with PA school, dental school, medical school. Um, those types of things, you're probably taking the right classes. So that's hopefully comforting. That would obviously be the place to start is in your undergraduate. Maybe go see a few cases, give me a call, come out to Orlando, come in and and see if you like what we do. I would also say if after hearing this interview, your initial thought is like, oh, I'm not enough of a thrill seeker. This sounds a little bit too intense for me. That may not be the case. I, I would say that I'm not like an adrenaline junkie. I'm, you know, I'm not somebody that, I get freaked out too, you know, like it, it's intense for me too. And yet I'm, I would like to think I'm good at what I do and I'm, I'm able to manage that. And so don't, don't be afraid. Um, If it seems like this might be a good fit in every other way, and that's your one holdup, you know, let's chat. And and I can hopefully give you some reassurance uh, on that front because um, the training really does prepare you to be ready. You know, people don't walk into that OR without being ready. Um, And so, yeah, we can, we can manage that, uh, the scariness of it. I, the only thing I'll say is that, uh, perfusionists like that. This is a hidden gem of a healthcare job. You know what I mean? We, we are kind of pride ourselves on not a lot of people knowing. So that's why I hesitated to reach out to you. Cause I was like, ah, I don't want, I don't want too many people to come in and, and find out what a great gig I have. But, uh, but yeah, no, I, I love what I do. I love to talk about what I do and introduce people to it. So feel free to, to reach out.
0: A big thank you to Josh for donating his time to the show. Follow us on Instagram at employedpodcast for the latest updates and giveaways. If you or someone you know is interested in becoming a guest, visit employedpodcast.com. Thanks for listening.